Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. I'm someone who's constantly thinking about my relationship with music, and lately I've been specifically thinking about my listening habits and how they've changed over time. I think the instant accessibility of most of the world's recorded output has changed the way that most of us consume music, and I wonder... Do people still sit with a record like they once did? I don't know if they do. I know that I'm definitely guilty if not. It kind of makes me sad when I think about it. I think about some of my favorite records and how with some, the amount of work it took to first discover it and then actually hear it. And because of the work that went into it and the limited amount of funds that I had as a teenager, I was forced to sit with a record allowing something that I may not have initially and instantly loved grow and become something that would stay with me. Very few of my all-time favorite records are ones that I instantly loved. So am I missing out on future favorite records because now it's easier and more affordable to discover music? It's just something I've been thinking about. You know, Seeking out new music when I was a teenager, even though the tail end did have the added benefit of a faster internet connection, was still work. And for someone with an insatiable appetite for consuming music, this was work that I was more than happy to do. In the early years of becoming a music obsessive, I still utilized the same standard methods as most suburban teens, like mixtapes, cool older individuals, college radio, and MTV's 120 Minutes. Around 1998-99, Cable modem internet came to my hometown of Noonan, Georgia. And let me tell you, friends, it, it was amazing. I mean, for someone with my particular vice, a faster internet connection allowed me to indulge in music and music information all to my heart's content. And in those early days of fiber optic internet, one of my favorite websites was allmusic.com. And one of my favorite features of that site was the similar two sections present on most artist profiles. Now, I'm not sure what artist profile I was reading about at the time, but this was how I first heard about the North Carolina band, Jenny Anykind. This was probably in 2000, 2001, when I was a senior in high school. Now, remember how amazing I said Faster Internet was for music fans at this time? Well, Faster Internet also meant I could use this new program called Napster, which, let me tell you friends, was also pretty amazing. With Napster, I could often find music by the bands I was reading about, and the bands I knew I'd never be able to find at the one record store we had in Noonan at the time. Now the only song I found on Napster by Jenny Anykind was a song called When the Sun Shines Down on the Average. And I instantly loved it. The pounding pianos and shouted vocals. The chugle. This, this was a band for me. So when I saw that the song was from a 1996 record called Revelator, and that it was released by a major label, I assumed it would not be too difficult to find. But it wasn't at the one record store in Noonan, and it wasn't on CD Now either. Soon enough, though, I found a used copy on eBay. And when it finally arrived at my house, I put it on, and I listened. 
This is the story of that record. So my name is Michael Holland, and um, uh, I guess you could say I was the founder of Jenny Anykind. So my role uh, would be the principal songwriter up until uh, 1999 when, when Mark contributed songs to one of our Yapra records. But yeah, so I, I'm the singer, uh, the, the guitar player, and the, the principal songwriter for um, Revelator. And uh, if you want to get into details, I played the, played the organ and the piano on that record as well. Michael Holland and his twin brother Mark grew up in Monroe, North Carolina. The brothers started on piano at an early age, with Michael eventually gravitating towards guitar and Mark taking up the drums. Though he played in bands all throughout high school and college, it wasn't until the end of his time at Clemson University that Holland got serious about pursuing music. Uh, I had a bad car wreck in college, and a guy T-boned me as I was driving down to Charleston, and... um, I ended up having a splenectomy and I almost died and spent the week in the hospital. But my brother said that was my creative creativity kind of went way up after that. And that kind of opened my eyes just to kind of really pursue that creative uh, part of my life and um, kind of shun everything else. I just like thought life was too short and started thinking like, hey, man, I, I, I have these visions of these songs and I feel like I'm tapped in and I feel like. I feel like this is what I want to do. I was going to go to film school after college, but uh, on a road trip out to California, I visited Loyola, where I was going to go and got had gotten accepted and, and just decided, you know, I just wanted to play music. From these two separate events, Michael Holland decides to relocate to Chapel Hill. He forms Jenny Anykind in 1991. And I was going to move to Athens or Chapel Hill because, you know, back then that's kind of where it was happening. But I didn't know anybody in Athens, and I knew... I knew one person in Chapel Hill, this this girl who was my neighbor in Charlotte, where my parents lived at the time. I uh, I met Tom Royal at, uh, I actually put an ad in the paper and he answered it because uh, our, our first drummer uh, was actually a guy named Peel Wimberly from the Connells. And so uh, this is like, this is like 91, 1991 in Chapel Hill. And Tom answered it, and so I met him, and um, Mark had, uh, we both had Army scholarships. This was a four-year, mine was a three. I dumped mine. I didn't have to commit, and uh, he had to serve. So he served, and Clinton was in office at the time, and he got out early and then joined the band when when he moved over here. In 1994, the trio of the Holland brothers and bassist Tom Royal released their debut record as Jenny Anykind, titled Etc. The following year, they released their second record, Mythic. Both records were released through Number 6 Records, an independent label ran by Terry Tolkien. Tolkien, a legend in the independent music scene, was responsible for signing the Butthole Surfers to Touch and Go Records, and would eventually become vice president of A&R at Elektra, signing such noted acts as Luna, Stereolab, and the Afghan Wigs. I had so much time to 
put that first record together and um, Kramer from Shimmy Disc was into it. And that's how Terry Tolkien heard it. And he took us from Kramer. I talked to Kramer on the phone. He, I just didn't, I just thought he, uh, I just got a bad vibe from him. And um, it's kind of a bad deal. Not like they're, they're any good deals. But um, <laughs> going into Mythic, uh, that was the second one we did. Um, we had all our gear stolen in New York. So it wasn't crazy about the recording, but if you ever heard that record, it's, it's good songs. It just, uh, it's very riff heavy, you know? So it, it, it's moving in a direction that's different than Revelator, to be honest. Somebody had said that Mythic was, um, we were becoming more innovative and something else, but less likable. <laughs> and I thought that was a, a cool statement. In 1995, Holland begins to write the songs that would eventually become the record Revelator. With Revelator, you know, um, I think we got we got turned on to Bob Dylan, and we got turned on to uh, all the people that he was turned on, like the Harry Smith anthology. First night when I went home, drunk as I could be, there's another mule in the stable where my mule ought to be. And I remember writing some songs after Mythic that were even more Mythic-like than Mythic. And at some point, uh, there's a few things happening. Uh, I think this was 1995. Uh, so we're in the music business. You know, our goal is to get on a major label and, and, uh, and be successful. We, you know, we had a lot of drive. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we also were vulnerable to a lot of the excesses that come with the musician's lifestyle yeah. and uh so you know it was just kind of comical at times like we had these crappy jobs and and that's all i ever thought about was writing music but um uh so that was 90 95 so i would have been uh 70, 26 and so that that's kind of a like that kind of age, you're, you're kind of kind of at a crossroads where you're like, "This is how my life. I thought my life was going to be, but this is how it's turning out." And and it's kind of a morose time. And um, so I had a had a girlfriend at the time, and uh, and it, it didn't end well, and and it really broke my heart at the time, and I was devastated, and. I was wondering kind of with that and the music business and just kind of what was going on with, with my life. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was uh, going to create this character, the revelator ER at yeah. the end. A lot of people misspell it. Uh, who was kind of a Dylan like character, you know, and he was just kind of rail on everybody. And, uh, um, but it was a really, really me just trying to make make sense of what was happening to me and, and why these things were happening to me. You know, why did this girl dump me? And and also trying to make sense of what I knew was our foray into a much larger. We all knew of larger foray into another level of the music business that I'm not quite sure we were prepared for. During the time in which the songs for Revelator were being compiled, 
Jenny and Ekin signed with major label Electra Records. It was like a dream come true. You know, um, I, um, I can remember sitting at Tom's apartment and reading through the contract and signing it. And, and actually, and we were very different than other bands in the Chapel Hill scene. And, and we were, um, we didn't do that great here. And I think it was kind of a shock to some people, you know, in, in town that, that we got, but, but, um, that we got signed to a major label. Cause you know, whether or not people admit it, that's uh, probably the goal of every band at, at that time, you know, and, uh, and, and you understand and people will have to understand that this was before the time you could upload music digitally and yeah. do these things on your own. I mean, uh, you know, I was on the phone every day calling to try and book places. I mean, it not, there was just, wasn't anything and we were still web 1.0 or whatever and there just was no way to book or do anything online and you know we had a, a map we carried with us uh, a list of phone numbers for clubs that and they'd have a set day to call and you try to call and you get in touch with the person at cbgb's and they liked what you sent in then they'd book you with eight other bands you know <laughs> and and you know, and so it was kind of like that. And uh, so, yeah, so um, it was exciting for us, but it was scary. Inspired by the recent breakup and the new relationship that he was currently experiencing with the music industry, Holland's songs begin to go in a musical direction different from previous efforts. With his recent immersions into both the Dylan catalog and Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music, Holland begins to find inspiration in the earliest forms of the American blues. So we we were getting into that stuff, and Mark especially was uh, turning me on to more blues stuff, and that's that's where that G seventh came from. That that Dylan stuff, and also the it's just very prominent in a lot of blues things. And uh, being left-handed, it was easy for me to play with my fingers on my right hand and just have that thing, my left hand walk around. And um, so, yeah, yeah, there's um, like uh, Lightning Hopkins and stuff like that. Robert, Robert Johnson's uh, a little different, but man, I was so into him. I was really into Mississippi John Hurt, into those guys, Charlie Patton especially too. Hey, I think one of the first ones I wrote was um, Revelator because I came across um, that A diminished chord and came up to D and I was like, that's cool. And and I'd already been fooling around with those walk downs on G7. Through his persona of the Revelator, the lyrics began to go in a specific direction as well. I think it it was me asking God my creator, like, you know, I'm having some doubts here about how this works, this thing called life. It was an imagery that I was very familiar with to question the cosmos uh, about and uh, uh, rec- make a reckoning with my life up to then and my childhood and where it was going. And it was very comfortable for me to uh, to use that type of um, that type of, of religious uh imagery and um and and 
you know, stuff like the, you know, that puts into the blues part of it too. But at the same time, um, it wasn't even a conscious decision. I, some of the times I was just looking for songs. Like I remember driving through the mountains of North Carolina and we saw a, a sign on the side of the road that said, you better get right with God. And I was like, hey, that sounds like a good song. And, you know, I'm not not particularly religious either. I, I uh, grew up Baptist and we grew up going to church, but we snickered in church and you know, we loved singing the songs, but we misbehaved. But those are the, those are the words that helped me make meaning of the world around me. And also, it was deeply personal, I know, uh, this record, uh, Revelator. I'm a natural person who has to uh, to mask his lyrics, so they don't seem as personable. You know, I can't just, I have to kind of misdirect and stuff like that. It writes itself pretty much, you know, so you just kind of write what's coming. And it just happened to be a, a, that type of imagery kind of apocalyptic vision of the world in my love life. Religious imagery has always been prevalent throughout the many eras of rock and roll, but the mid-90s was not necessarily a time of many rock bands singing about Jesus, the obvious exception being artists within the contemporary Christian rock scene. But in the context of 90s indie rock, this was not a common or even welcomed occurrence. Uh, for example, take a record like Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea. I mean, it's considered a classic now, but when it was first released, many in the indie rock circles were scratching their head at Jeff Mangum's declaration of, I love you, Jesus Christ. So, for a band to release a record, a major label debut, mind you, in which many of the lyrics involve God and Jesus, one might view this as risky. Though this was not entirely a risk, Holland considered when writing these songs. No, we ne never thought about that. Yeah. I, you know, it just was just like, yeah, here's our record. You know, and uh, we, you know, I don't think I think we were too self-absorbed to have any perception beyond our own, our, you know, our own inner circle. If you think about it during that time, and this is why when when somebody will bring it up once in a while, I say that was the best punk record of that year uh, because. You know, people didn't want to hear this stuff. People were making money hand over fist. It was the, the 90s and the fall of communism. And mm -hmm. people were just partying. And uh, and no one wanted to hear something like this. It's not an easy listen. And uh, it's, it's pretty heavy. So that's why I say, man, it's a good rock record. But depending on how you define punk, it's, it's probably one of the better punk records that came out around that time, too. In preparing for the record, Holland began compiling demos, which he sent to the other members of the band, just so they would know the changes. But individual parts were further developed out on the road the year before. We were tight from the road, but we didn't rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. We, we kind of just went with it, trust the process of um, seeing what would happen, you know? And... Um, the songs were already there, and all that was ready, you know? So there was no guesswork about, should we add a lyric here? Where's this song going? We came in with the, with the whole record, and, and then some. And so it was just a matter of getting the right sounds and then getting a good take. For Revelator, Electra brings in producer Dave Fridman to work on the record. Fridman, a well-respected producer, probably best known for his work with the Flaming Lips. We didn't pick Dave uh, 
much as I love Dave and uh, didn't know anything about him, it's so funny because you know he does like he did like much more bombastic bands like uh, Flaming Lip. He did MGMT, which is much later, and then another couple of bands off Electra. Um, but anyway, so he had us all set up. And uh, we recorded something. We went in there the, like the day before, set up. We were playing live, and he's walking around us, looking at us. Recorded some stuff when we went in there to listen to it, and it was it was really huge. And we said, Dave, that sounds great, but you know what? We really want to sound a lot smaller than that. <laughs> he was not prepared for that, and uh, so he had to make all these adjustments. You know, um, he had already set everything up. So instead of like, you know, he, he, that I think that's one reason kind of why it has kind of a unique sound. It has a unique kind of compressed sound, but it, I don't believe it's compressed going to tape. I think he he patched it in through the board, but um, you know, it was it was very different kind of record for him to make compared to the other records he makes. Producer John Congleton, who's worked with artists such as The Walkman and Beach House said about Fredman that he's the only engineer alive able to synthesize excitement in a way that's not completely ear-fatiguing, that his intensity cannot be matched. This is most apparent in the drums on Revelator. They're heavy, but not overwhelming. I think the drumming is incredible. Not only the sound, but the playing. I think Mark did such a great job. I was thinking about that the other night. uh, To me, they're the best part. Like The drums sound incredible. Kind of that uh, Mitch Mitchell, or mm-hmm. it's just got a classic drum sound to it, you know? He had a sweet kit, too, this old Ludwig. And I want to say Ludwig. I may, um, it may have been a slinger Linux. Anyway, they sounded great. In the winter of 96, Jenny Anykime began recording the songs for Revelator at Sweetfish Studio in the town of Argyle in upstate New York. It was the barn of this guy's house in. He had inherited a lot of money or something like that. I want to say that, okay, so you go in and there's a foyer. Of course, you can record in the foyer. And then, you know, then you go into the big live room. To the left, there's the isolation booth. That's where we did some of the guitar. And then uh, the organ was in there. It was a Hammond organ. I had it, you know, yeah, I had the whole Leslie speaker. It was nice. The piano would be in the live room. The drums were in the live room. Uh, I think there was another isolation room where they would uh, put Tom's cabinet or he played direct. I can't remember. And then um, on the other side of glass, if you keep going, was the control room. And then there was a loft upstairs where the three of us would stay. We'd stay up late and we would be playing video games and doing things that musicians do to relax. and. Uh, Every morning <laughs> or, you know, around lunch, <laughs> Dave Fredman would come up there and be like, all right, guys, <laughs> time to get to work. Uh, he had been downstairs, like, waiting, like, a couple hours, and he would just get to a point where he, he'd come up and wake us up. So, I, you know, I, I recorded that record in my, my jammies. I think I ever got out of my pajamas that whole week. It was cool. We, we were totally enjoying the experience, you know, and it was just, you know, knee deep in snow everywhere. So great place to focus. And this was January of 96. Four of the sessions, 
Holland brought his own gear, but also utilized various equipment provided by the studio. Yeah, so I had a, um, I had two guitars. I had a Fender Strat, the Sunburst. The, you know, it was a nice one, American-made. And then I had a Fender Tele, uh, kind of a Keith Richards special. I had the humbucker uh, blonde with a, a maple neck. But um, so I had those two guitars, and I actually had a 61 brown Tolex Fender uh, Deluxe. Uh, it was a great amp, and um, and then there were a couple other amps here. I think there was a Fender Twin. So those were the those were the two guitars I used, and then I had a we borrowed a Les Paul for a Great Deceiver. Yeah, that's a, that was a Les Paul. And then they made a record. Revelator begins with Repent in Time, a perfect opening track, which greatly sets the tone for the rest of the record. It was written as an opener. It was probably the last song written. I wish I could remember where that opening riff comes in, but if, if I played the song that it came from, you would say, oh, I can see where that came from. It's not a copy of a, another song's riff, but it's from some other song I can't remember. That one is just painting the, the imagery of, of what I was seeing at the time. And, and uh, I had this whole vision of this this whole thing happening, you know. There's been so many songs that I, you know, would sit down and work on forever and ever and ever. And, but a lot of these songs, uh, I didn't have to. And I, I was very fortunate. Uh, but Repentant Time is one of those ones I've, I had to work on a little bit. But it is written just as an opener. You know, there's a lyric in there about I really want you and I really need you too. And, that, and it never really says who that person is. It could be another person. It could be it could be your maker. I think there's just these imageries of people bathing uh, naked and shivering. They're not there's an uneasiness uh, about it where you're asking people to repent, you know, basically like here's your chance before we go any further deeper into the mystic or whatever. I think it does pretty well for setting, setting it up. You know, we didn't do the vocals live. We did track those separately. And, um, I remember that one just trying to get a decent, decent vocal take. And I think most of it is first take except that the rock scream at the end. I could scream like Roger Daltrey or something like that, but you know, I did my best. And uh, the only real memory I have is is just that we recorded it live, and I think we got it down one or maybe two takes. It would take a while to get the vocals. Uh, I'd usually come in later that night and I'd have a few drinks or something like that to loosen up.
Following Repentant Time is the track Revelation in Practice Room 13, a blues-influenced number with prominent splashes from a swelling organ. There's a drunken weariness to the song, which also contains lyrics that further the apocalyptic imagery of Repentant Time. So Practice Room 13 was a um, at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. They have a piano. They have a music hall, of course, and... Uh, down in the basement, they had these little like eight by ten cells on a piano in them. Probably about ten of them. Well, well, more than that. We obviously had at least thirteen. So during my lunch, or you know, any time of the day, really, I was sneaking out there, and the the building was just probably a hundred yards from where I was working at the time in some administrative job, and I would go down there and work on the music for this record. And uh, this is kind of um, this is a C and G chord, and I think it goes up to A. I can't remember exactly, but it was a good song to kind of work out on piano. Painting, uh, I remember envisioning this apocalyptic scene. Starts out quiet and then goes more and more where there's actually uh, a fire descending and dead ascending from the uh, the earth. Stuff that you read about in Revelation. I think a lot of these songs, like I'm trying to engage the listener. Hey, did you feel that? There's some kind of battle going on, you know, but we're going to, we're going to remain calm because we're not afraid, you know, be ready because ready's going to get ready for you too. It's always fun to like turn the mirror on somebody else, but then turn them back on yourself. So I start talking about myself that I'm really, and I'm, I'm only, I'm out of touch. I've got ghosts appearing and reappearing. They're creepy, but they're endearing. And I'm, I'm thinking about my life, I'm confused about, what's happening but i'm, I'm my intent and, and this song wants to paint a, a dire picture but hopeful too like that's the thing is I, I, I always thought i wrote a lot of happy songs but then they when i listened back they sound sad <laughs> and that was through no fault of my own but um that's just this connection between about what you feel is you're trying to convey and what you hear and what people perceive. And I was lonely. I was lonely at the time, you know, I felt isolated. These ghosts were giving me comfort, you know, the ghosts of my past that come to me as I lay in bed at night. And so at some point, you know, I, I decided to take action. I'm getting on a ship. I've got my plans. I'm going to save the world or whatever. I got stopped immediately by a breeze coming off the ocean and the whole Things going to hell in a handbasket. You know, there's fire descending, the dead is ascending, there's violent storms and earthquakes unending. But but I turned to uh, this woman, or I'm calling her baby, so I'm assuming she's a woman. And I'm saying, but I'm thankful. But are, are, aren't you thankful too? It's so, it's so easy to be thankful when you're sitting pretty and true. So that's just a little bit of cut to people who. I guess had it so good. Uh, but when things go wrong, are you still thankful? That's actually one of my favorite songs on the record. Revelation in Practice Room 13 also stands as a perfect example of the piano sound of this record. Many of these songs feature piano, but they're not prominent in the mix. The pianos blend with the other instruments, adding an interesting rhythmical aspect to the songs. It's similar to the way rhythm guitars are often mixed to fill in the sonic space. That was probably a happy accident where somebody said, this song needs something. Somebody said, Mike, Mike, why don't you go out there and play something on the piano? It's the way you recorded it too. You know, it, 
it's like that on everything except maybe soul at the end you know they, they try to limit the frequencies of the piano to a small range so so it does fit in a pocket somewhere in a song it has another rhythmic element to it god says you can't take nothing from me that i couldn't very easily take right back from you i'll give you everything you want if you just say please like faith and hope at least that's something You Better Get Right With God is a song that is still in keeping with the record's blues-indebted sound, but also brings in elements of jazz. It's like if the Dave Brubeck Quartet became a bar band. This would be their sound. When we would play that live, we would we would take it out into that jazz territory, and we would totally deconstruct it and play it for 20 minutes. To me, it's kind of a classic, it's a Dylan thing, but it's more religious, you know, where... It's me coming to terms with God, too, and, you know, trying to understand what's going on with my life at the time and what's going on with, with our band. And and like I said, I saw that sign that had you better get right with God. And I, I've seen it um, other times, too, in other places, and I don't think it's that uncommon. Um, I wish I could write like this again. I mean, it's so word-heavy. And so many rhymes and stuff like that that all seem to come together. And then in that version, God is actually saying back. It's actually, a, now that I think about it, it's, it's a conversation uh, just thinking back where he's saying, you know, you go your way and I'll go mine, son, and, and we'll get together when your time comes. Like, you know, you can't put all this on me. You've had a lot to do with this. So uh, we can talk about this all day. Uh, but in the end, it is up to you. This is your mess. <laughs> The vocals were live, and uh, that's with the Strat. I just thought we got a great version of that, and uh, we did that one live. So that that's now in memory. That's how we we recorded everything with a vocal, and in that one we kept the scratch vocal. You say that's okay until you die like the rest. But don't mind me if I seem a little sour. With the final notes of You Better Get Right With God, the record just perfectly transitions into When the Sun Shines Down on the Average. The song, much in the tradition of great rock songs with driving rhythms, it's like a southern rock roadrunner. It's kind of a perfect pop song. remember all this in 95 just kind of working on that one here and there and uh rewriting the 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 verses a few times what i think makes this song pretty cool is the transition into the the last part yeah we did the whole like you know Def leopard pour some sugar on me gather around the mic like twice you know to record it (laughs) 
but yeah, it was sort of like um, that that line when the sun shines down on the average is kind of like a take on uh, when the meek inherit the earth, and it feels good. And uh, when the water washes over everything, when the cuts off and the stone don't run, when uh, Jesus stubs his foot on another stone, when we stagger in the promise of larger things, when we all find ourselves in a different world. Yeah, it's all kind of lighthearted, you know. Probably the most, one of the most accessible songs on the record. In uh, that organ at the end, I, I thought it came out really well, you know. It's like being in church, trying to blow the roof off the joint, you know. And when in doubt, stomp on the volume pedal on the, the organ all the way down. Break up the Leslie. Uh, it was a good song live, too. Like, it was a, like a staple. We would take a middle part in A and just stay on that kind of like uh, Stones did um, on Get Your Yaya's Out. We thought that would, was really cool to have that song where we could just have an instrumental thing that would go on forever in just one note. Following When the Sun Shines Down on the Average is the title track. Revelator was one of the first songs composed by Holland for this record. Side note, the lyrics continue much of the apocalyptic imagery that was first introduced in Repentant Time, and even repeats a line from that song in the lyric, The Future Was Murder. actually probably my favorite and uh i just love that uh that a a diminished chord to d's and so that's how that song started and then um i remember sitting in our part of davy's circle here we live in this kind of brady bunch looking apartment uh, mark and i did and heard that a diminished chord uh, somewhere uh you know you'll hear the blues guys and they'll do it and they'll run it up the neck did that and hit the d and i was like wow that sounds cool and then i, then I went to a g7 because half the songs on here are in g7 
it was frustrating being in Jenny any kind sometimes because I felt like we were not very well listened to in our hometown and, and we did well on the road here and there, but this, certain things were always a struggle for us. You know, if you want to be a soothsayer, then at some point you got to tell somebody, you know, what truth is. And that, I remember that first lyric, it starts out like that. The revelator is saying that I know what truth is. I am the revelator. I'm the one that's going to, I can see the future and this is how it's going to happen. It's not that it doesn't make sense. So it's kind of masked in that way in this imagery that um, I thought was uh, pretty cool. Very apocalyptic time for me, you know, where I had a lot of doubts and uh, wasn't sure uh, where to turn. I love playing this song live, too. And and that that's with the uh, that's with the Keith Richards special guitar. Uh, I think that get, had such a cool sound, you know. song Sucker, with its slow rhythm and harmonica flourishes, is the most overtly blues-influenced number on the record, and its inclusion was actually a point of debate amongst the Holland brothers. Interesting story on there is we put out like kind of an EP before that, you know, we, you know, a band Jenny Any Kind, or probably one of the most difficult bands to market <laughs> in the world. Uh, the poor guy at Electra was fantastic to work with, but you know, we had to cut a few songs from the record and they put them on this EP and revelators on there and you better get right with God. But then we had a couple of songs and when the sunshine's down on the average is on there too, it's just kind of introducing us, but there's a song fashion on there. That's very uh, more pop than anything else on the record. Mark and I had the, we had a debate about whether sucker or fashion was was going to be on there, and uh, he eventually won and convinced me. Very strong personality, and and I was fine with that. Uh, it definitely made it more of a rock record to have sucker on there. And he said, "Do you want to be a rock band or a pop band?" And I said, "Yeah, I want to be a rock band, but why can't we be both?" So. I think one of the regrets I have, and I wouldn't know until I listened to it in the sequences, 
not having that song fashion on there, which I thought was pretty cool. But Suckers, you're straight up white boys trying to do like rock blues type live song. And that was written very quickly. I think that's the, probably the one song on the record where it, we're trying to copy or emulate someone else, like a, a bluesman or some, one of our idols, or, you know, whether it's you know Mick Jagger or somebody like that. So uh, no deep imagery there. It, it's straight up like, baby, break my heart. You know, gonna leave you woman if you don't sucker me in. Like I'm, uh, it's, it's a woman hater song, you know, I'm hating women at the time. Yeah, uh, it was a fun song to record, and I. Uh, we did like the end of the day, started drinking a little bit. Business is business, so we took care of business when we had to, but we had fun. Coincidentally, following the song that caused a debate amongst the brothers is a song Michael Holland wrote about his brother called The Great Deceiver. that song and I was kind of pissed at my brother so he's actually the great deceiver we're twin brothers and we love each other but it doesn't mean we always get along but I remember at the time I was like is he is he with me or is he working against me here and that's just the band dynamic you know that's just a dynamic and uh all that goes all the excesses that that go that can feed into those fears I was just thinking of uh trying to write a a good just had that rhythm, that, that kind of Rolling Stones type rhythm. And I think the song starts in C minor. And also wanted to have that, the other element, the Judas element or the satanic element on it, you know. The song is definitely to kind of give a give a relief to the rest of it, I think. It's not like I was listening to Jesus Christ Superstar like every day. But uh, I heard it the other night and there's just, there's a couple songs on there that are so different that paint like the darker side so I, I think I was looking for a song there that was a little bit different much of the religious imagery throughout the songs on Revelator are of the fire and brimstone variety and following this sinners in the angry hands of God like heaviness as well as the Judas slash uh, satanic element of the great deceiver is the track the cross of Jesus the cross of Jesus say i wish i could go back and record that vocal again although it's an honest vocal but um i can't remember when i wrote that song but um you know I, i'm not very religious but i've always enjoyed um and I, i'll be honest i don't believe jesus rolled back the stone and you don't have to believe all that i mean you, you could see that jesus was by his his teachings, you know, compassion and love and forgiveness that uh, examples to live by, uh, whatever, you know, fear, 
faith is. You should, they should all talk about love and forgiveness. It's, it's amazing how many people who say they're Christians don't actually practice those things. But that's just my opinion. But I can't really remember when I when I wrote that. Uh, it obviously hangs on that opening kind of riff in um, G. And I, I think that's almost a precursor to a lot of the song structures on Big John's, which um, I think I wrote that on piano. Uh, a lot of the songs on that Big John's record that came after that were on piano. So that's why you have like a this kind of uh, progression of chord changes. And, you know, there's not a lyric on here that I didn't believe at the time I was singing. I'm not sure what led me to that song, except that I felt like uh, something had to be said about Jesus in there, you know, not as uh, not as the guy who rolled back the stone and and reappeared before his disciples, but um, certainly just the the teachings that he stood for seemed to get lost. celebratory nature of the Chicano rock-inspired Day of the Dead is still in keeping with the overall tone of Revelator. Much like the culture that would inspire it, religious overtones are present, but the heaviness of the earlier songs is lessened. Day of the Dead, yeah, I saw those skeletons, the masks and all that, and I thought those were the coolest things ever. It's, it's amazing I'd never seen it before then, but uh, I hadn't. And loved and listened to, like, I like a crap load of Trini Lopez records. You know, we would go and we'd pick up uh, uh, used records. I worked at uh, School Kids Records here in Chapel Hill. It's closed now, but way back in the early 90s. And uh, there used to be a great sandwich shop called uh, Sky Exchange. It's now a nightclub. But um, they had great used records. There were several places to get used records. So we got these Trini Lopez records. And, and I was like, I'm going to write a song. Now, the Day of the Dead is going to be in this kind of Hispanic vein, but it still follows the same chords as um, the rest of the record, really. A lot of a lot of G and a lot of C. I think uh, A minor is what it kicks off in. I think it's a good way to, like, uh, bring some stuff back down to earth. You know, like, hey, let's not worry about any of this. This is, this is some heavy stuff. Let's just drink some tequila and wine, you know? And... Uh, I think it's a good spot for that song on uh, on the record. All on His Own is the sound of a Southern Baptist church choir backed by a classic rock band.
So that that comes like straight from Third Stone from the Sun. Uh, I don't know if you can hear that in there, that old Hendrix song. And the Who has some stuff like that. The, the drums, you know, really make that. And then uh, it has that kind of Hendrixy guitar lick. And then we all, you know, got back in there on the mic, did the whole uh, He Is Risen thing, you know, some kind of climax to this record. It's just something a little different. I mean, you write what you write, and then and then you've got to have enough to have a record. I always love that that song just because it was so fun to record. You know, my, my wife, Juliet, she, she chides me because I never want to go see a musical, but I'll be singing, I'll be making up stuff. She's like, well, well, you should write a musical. So that's probably my first attempt at something as in a musical. So a little bit of theatrics there from Jenny Anaconda. Every Executioner has a song. The Dylan influence is perhaps the strongest than on any other track on Revelator. Musically, it has the vibe of bringing it all back home if it had been recorded at Sun Studio. Never show my face in West Virginia, but who could never ask for more? We never had a good show in West Virginia, except maybe Charleston one time. Uh, there's something in the water there that makes you wicked. I have many something that offends me i have many fans to turn on so he's almost like a rock star you know it's, it's easy to take a dying man for his money believe me i do it all the time it's almost appalling to hear what he's confessing because it, who would want to have that time but it, it's executioner's time because he's gateway to death it's, it's his time to shine in this musical he's talking uh it's kind of absurd at the end like every fay ray has king kong every cigarette has a lung and then he says I hope the times that come between us won't be long. I think that's a, a, a cool ending for our, our man in the black hood and his, his guitar-like acts. He deserves the song. I always really uh, thought the lyrics were cool. And I only say that because, there again, sometimes things just write themselves. And you're not really in control of it. And, uh, I think Willie Nelson said something right. You're just pulling things out of the current uh, that's around you. And, and uh, that's a lot of that going on in this record. I, I would love to say that that I created a lot of this stuff, but I really think it was created for me. And I was just at the right age, at the right place, at the right time to and open, very open to connect with what I was feeling and, 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 and able to kind of, translate that into uh, uh, something listenable and and uh, something worth worth reading too from a lyric driven perspective Soul ends the record. The song shares both a similar mood and tone with that of Repentant Time. The similarities of these two songs create the perfect bookends for Revelator.
The most honest, personable songs on that record, where、uh, I feel like, especially with Soul, I'm really confessing about、uh, as a writer、uh, what what I'm feeling, you know,、uh, at that time. Like I'm not quite sure what's happening to me or what's gonna happen, but I know these dark times I I can't let you go, and that could be a person or it could be God or Allah or whoever you believe in. So many times I tore myself apart, but now I'm here to say I'm going to make a new start or something like that.、Um, and I, I think at the time, like you know, I didn't really believe the world was coming to an end, but a part of my life was coming to an end. So、uh, um, in, in these last days, I'll find truth with you, and I think this is the last record where I said me or I, you know, and I think. From then on, I spoke about writing songs. I spoke about us, or we. This is the last song where I probably talked about just me.、Uh, but I am referring to needing someone else. You know, needing someone else, and that can be a loved one, or or God, or a higher power, or whatever, you, whatever word you want to associate with it. It's all good.、Um, and.、Um, Yeah, so、uh, sat down at the piano and did probably like five vocal takes, and just just wasn't happy. And we left, and I, I hit the bottle. I got drunk, and I came back in, and one take a few hours later after dinner, just got the take we wanted, and was that was the last thing we needed to, to do before we mixed the record. And it was a it was a, a great feeling. Still in my pajamas. With the recording process complete, the band went about creating the album art, and in keeping with the lyrical content of Revelator, the photo shoot also had an apocalyptic atmosphere. Yeah, well, that was a, a miserable photo shoot, and, and, and nothing against Kent Slesk. There, there was a hurricane coming through, and he came down to Chapel Hill. We did some stuff.、Uh, I think on the back of the record, we went out to this. Bar out on like old U.S. Highway One, and you can see that kind of like Confederate, some old Southern rock thing. There was like two people there, some old guy playing pool, and the bar owner was this lady who just wasn't too sure about us, because、uh, Kim was very New York, you know, and he was rubbing her the wrong way, and we were just like, let's get this done and get out of here. That's out be- out near the lake, and、uh, and then we we did some shots by Merit Store. We did some shots in town, but. I think this is where, you know, when you get to that、uh, major label level, you you got to play the part a little bit differently. And as we soon found out,、um, I soon found out that I wasn't really cut out to be that. My value system is、uh, is kind of immovable, and it reacts when I, something doesn't agree with me. And I think you have to. You're not always a nice person, and 
uh, when you get to a certain level in the music business, you can't always be nice. And uh, it was difficult. Suddenly, uh, you have a lot of people telling you different things, and you're not really sure. But uh, if you look at that picture in the middle, we're in this pouring rain, and you can look at our faces. We're miserable. Um, but we did the, the see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. And we had just picked up those ponchos hardware store. The cover art, which was created by Holland, befits the themes present within the record. The front cover image is the album title printed large in white with the band's name under it in gold, surrounded by stars and encased in a starburst pattern. On the inside, biblical iconography shows up throughout. There are palm trees, stars, crosses, as well as skeletons and a UFO. The monkeys mentioned in the title track are present, and one is wearing a crown of thorns. Uniting all these images is a blood-red background. The other pages are these little wooden blocks. They're probably uh, 8 inches by 8 inches, maybe 6 inches by 6. I still have two sitting on my piano. I still have the one with the monkeys, and I still have the the cover, the revelator, but I gave the one with the skeletons and the one with the astronaut to uh, a friend. These are wooden blocks about half an inch thick that I just painted with simple paint after drawing on there, and and uh, it does the trick. I think it was very unique uh, for the time, but there was a lot of good artwork. I'm not even sure if this is good artwork, but it fits the record, so as the artist, you know, I had an idea for the for the cover, and they let me do it. And and I don't know if you've ever seen the the unwrapped one. I have one here that has never been opened, and it has a sticker on the front that says, "Just so you get it right." Uh, it reads, "Jenny Anykind is the band, Revelator is the album," because <laughs> they were so afraid that people would not realize which was which, you know. I mean, I thought it was the coolest cover ever, and it would jump off the shelves, but it it didn't. (laughs) Revelator is released on October 15th, 1996. But for Jenny Anykind, their experience within the major label system would be, unfortunately, a fairly common one, especially in the context of 90s alternative rock music. You know, the cool thing is Bob Krasnow was still at Electra. And he loved this record, man, and he was pushing it. And uh, we got some movement on um, college radio for when the sun shines down the average. And Bob Krasnow left and got replaced by Sylvia Ronan, and then Terry Tolkien left the week our record came out, and we didn't really have any representation at the label. We had uh, we had two managers, uh, a guy named Bobby McCain, a guy named Brooke Pitts, and they had helped us along the way, and they they – they were both from North Carolina. So Electra asked us to re-record that song when the sun shines down the average for commercial radio. Um, and, you know, to me, recording a song over was, is the fate worse than death. It was just anathema to me. It did not jive with my artistic value system. So I remember getting on the phone and I went to a payphone. I was up in Nashville visiting my girlfriend at the time. And I went to a payphone and talked to her uh, head of marketing, I can't remember her name, but she's. I I had every intention to resist and say no and all that, but all I did was say, "Yep, sure, okay, 
<laughs> and uh, next thing I know, our managers got Roger Mutino, who worked a lot with Yola Tango. We went to Nashville, and we didn't take uh, we didn't take any instruments because we were just like we're going to remix this thing. We're not going to re-record it. And at some point, he said, "I can't remix this thing." So we were like, "Okay." And uh, we managed to find us. This was at Woodland Studio, which is really cool. And uh, we went to a party that night, met a bunch of really nice Nashville people, got drunk out of our minds, and uh, had to get up and record the next day. Found a studio and, uh, and, and, and recorded it. And it, it just, it's not the same. No one thought it was as good. And the label certainly didn't either. And, and we got dropped. Uh, wasn't long after that because there was no more no more cards to play for us, you know. We didn't have anything going on commercial radio. Then uh, there's no reason to spend any more money on us. That was it for our ride to Electra, and it was it was kind of a a relieving way to end, but disappointing too. But I'm glad I didn't re-record that song and good enough to where it went on commercial radio because I don't know, maybe we'd still be playing pharmacy conventions like in stars born who knows things happen for a reason and tom left the band not long after that and uh we spent 97 kind of i i was writing the songs for big johns and um yep rock heard it you know because they electric bought us out we used that money to build our own studio and that's when we recorded big johns and then ended up getting picked up by yep rock so you know we, we soldiered on during the 90s, major labels went on a signing spree, hoping to discover the next big thing. And when a band or artist did not instantly reap a profit for the label, often was the case that they were quickly dropped from the roster. As disappointing as the situation must have been for Jenny Anykind, in the end, I don't think it was entirely a bad thing. In a way, it's through Elektra that the band was able to continue by building their own recording studio, creating their art on their own terms. And let me just say, Big John's, the album that came after Revelator, is also a really great record. And Elektra did give us Revelator. A weird little record, not beholding to any specific fashion or trend of the times. In the nearly 25 years since its release, it's a record that has aged exceptionally well kind of beyond me you know like uh it's kind of something i still kind of ponder at and wonder at because i think my ideal mo or or i always look for a marriage of lyrics and music and i really think this is a good example of a marriage of lyrics and music and then good production i i like it because of its uh that, that people still talk about it and like it that it, it that time has been good to it but um yeah, I, I, I'm proud that we were artists and, and we did what we wanted and then let everybody else figure the rest out. And I think that was the coolest part. And I think that's uh, that was cool with working with Terry, even though when he first heard it, he hated it. And um, he might disagree with that, but uh, he didn't like it when he first heard it. But now he loves it. It, it grows on you. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. Very special thanks to Michael Holland for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Revelator as well as the rest of the Holland Brothers recorded output 
at youramericansoul.com, which we'll put a link to on our webpage. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.